Today on the show is Kate Smythe. Kate developed her passion for natural medicine during her career as an elite endurance athlete competing in the Women's Marathon for Australia at the Olympic and Commonwealth Games and becoming one of the all-time fastest women in Australia with a personal best time of 2 hours 28 minutes. Her journey was not without challenges and she required the assistance of many holistic health practitioners from around the world to overcome and manage multiple injuries, chronic fatigue and celiac disease to progress from runner to Olympian in just eight years. She still runs most days, albeit retired from serious competition. Most of her time now is spent treating as a sports naturopath in Victoria, Australia. In this interview, we hear about Kate's inspiring journey from corporate worker to Olympic marathon runner. We also delve deeply into iron deficiency, iron deficiency anemia, what it is, why it's so prevalent, who is at risk, the testing to consider, the warning signs and the treatment options. I hope you feel inspired by Kate's story and educated by what she has to share on the topic of iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. Hi Kate, it's fabulous to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast episode. Thanks so much for having me, Ellie. It's really good to be here. Well, I mean, it's just, it's almost like our paths were supposed to, um, supposed to cross with one another. I was speaking with Kira Sutherland a couple of weeks ago. I said, who do you know that I could talk to about plant-based athletes, females? And she suggested you. And like, lo and behold, we live in the same little pocket of um, <laughs> the Victorian surf coast. Which is I pretty know. Awesome. It wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when that we were going to connect. So yeah. um, I'm so pleased that um Kira linked us together. Yeah, absolutely. And then I realised I actually do know a bit about your story because you know you're um you're you're a female Australian athlete that has an amazing well I think an amazing story about your rise to um to becoming an Olympian. Um, so of course today we'll talk about your your um your professional career as a sports naturopath and delve into iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia, but. I would love, as much as you want to relive or as little as you want to relive, tell the audience a little bit about your um, professional sporting background. Mm, absolutely. Well, should I kick off there? Is that, yeah. is that okay yeah. with you? Yeah, yeah, go for um, it. I think maybe just um, touching on what you just mentioned, I think my um, story and my journey to date is a little bit different. Um, I think we we have a perception that elite athletes have always been elite at something. And they've always been good at something. And uh, I think I'm one of those examples of a female athlete that came quite late or found myself in a sport quite late. And for non-competitive reasons, uh, I really got into running. I did run as a child and I loved, you know, school sport. And I certainly had a passion for it back then. But I was far from being um, someone who you would... Uh, recruit into a talented, you know, a recruitment pathway or development program. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just competed and I participated and I loved it. I was very, very passionate about just a a whole range of sports from hockey to running and a bit of cross country. But I did, you know, I did horse riding and I did just general things that all country kids often get exposed to. And I was really lucky to have a family unit who really encouraged my brother and I to get into sport as a way of connecting with our community and um, meeting friends because we were in a rural area. And otherwise, you um, if you don't go down the sporting path, you tend to get into trouble because there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of entertainment or other things to do like city kids might have had. So 
I was lucky in that they laid that beautiful foundation for me where I developed a passion for outdoor activity, you know, right from, I don't know, right from the moment I was brought into this world, I was outside. <laughs> I think my parents took me camping. My first trip was maybe at eight months or something. Like, well. I was just, you know, it's just something we did. And um, I'm so grateful for that, you know, that start to life. And then I um, went to uni and I did a little bit of running at uni, but a lot more drinking than I did running. And yeah. I'm like most people, you know. Yeah, it can um, happen. It can happen. And for my first time in my life, I was in the big smoke. I was in Sydney and, um, you know, it was all new and shiny. And um, I sort of um, just enjoyed my first university course. And then I went straight into the workforce and, I was in um, a service-based industry where there was very long hours and a lot of entertainment. I was in a sales and marketing role and I was entertaining a lot of clients. So I was eating a lot and there wasn't a lot of extra time for exercise, but I did a little bit just to keep myself ticking over. And then I decided to have um, some time off where I would travel overseas um, and just explore the world on my own. And so I went off and did that. But what I also did when I was away, especially in Europe, in Italy, was I found all their amazing pastries <laughs> and I ate my way around Europe and came back with enormous saddlebags and another 20 kilos of weight. Oh, wow. That's... That I didn't have when I left. <laughs> you feel so foreign. Oh, gosh. Um, that there On my frame, I'm, I'm not very tall. I'm only 165 centimetres. So, um when when I gain weight it's a little bit more obvious than say if I was a bit taller and um I remember just feeling very uncomfortable within myself and thinking well what can I do to actually change this scenario and while I was away I started the process of setting goals each year for myself and they were random stretch targets that was something different that I'd never done before and one of them was to overcome my fear of um, heights so I did a bungee jump in um, Zimbabwe um, off or over the Zambezi River, and that was amazing. And since then, I've fallen in love with heights. I now love doing skydiving and and uh, anything in the air is, you know, amazing. I feel like a bird. Um, and then the other thing was to finish a marathon without walking, and that was that was my primary aim as a way. I didn't want to focus on weight loss. I wanted to focus on something that I could feel was external to that and was more about moving me in a different direction. Mm. And I did. And I, I entered Canberra Marathon and I finished that without walking. Um, and I did everything wrong from a sports <laughs> sports science and coaching perspective. I was so undercooked. I didn't, I didn't train properly. I didn't I definitely didn't know about sports nutrition or hydration, mm. um, uh, but I made it by <laughs> yeah. some miracle. I made it. And what year was that when you did the Canberra oh, Marathon? I, I'm pretty sure that was that was very late 90s, whether it was 98, I think, or 99. It was okay. one of those, yeah. Yeah. And then um, at that run, um, Robert DiCostella was – there as the spokesperson he just released his book and he was signing autographs and I approached him he's a very um friendly chap and I just went oh Deeks you know do you mind if I have a quick chat and um he's like no not at all you know how many marathons have you done and I said oh, well this was my first but I really loved it I'm just wondering what you would recommend in terms of 
tell someone who'd just done their first marathon what they should do to actually get better at it. And he said, well, probably a good idea would be to actually get some proper running gear because I was running in my (laughs) brother's get this, my brother's homemade boxer shorts my mother had made. Wow. <laughs> and they chafed. They were the worst choice in the world. Oh, my God. Um, but they were made out of that terrible um, patterned paisley kind of floral. Oh, I can top, imagine. Yes. You know, country yeah. country homemade clothing. Anyway. Certainly not um, with Lululemon with your, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sweat-looking fabric. So bad. Anyway. Um, I recovered from that, thank goodness. But anyway, he also said, look, it'd be a good idea perhaps when you, um, I'd moved to Melbourne at that time, it'd be probably a good idea if you found a coach and you actually applied yourself in a more structured fashion and got some guidance so that you could progress. And so that's what I ended up doing. And I joined um, a fabulous, really friendly group of fun runners who love doing marathoners. Um, and we used to meet at the TAN. It was called Sporting Spirit. And that's how I met my very first coach, Brian Skepsey. Yeah. And I just turned up because it was fun. And we started to train together and then the year 2000 came around and they were doing a trial uh, for the Sydney Olympics and I was lucky to be invited as one of the trial runners for that event. And so I got a bit of a taste of, you know, what it was like to maybe be um, be an elite athlete. But, of course, I was nowhere near being selected or, you know, I was literally just a fun runner still at that stage. And then I watched from the stadium and watched the girls come in um, to finish. And Naoko Takahashi uh, came in to the stadium uh, well ahead of the other athletes. And she really impressed me. And when she crossed the line um, in first place, winning the gold, I got literally got goosebumps all over my body and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And I turned to my partner and I said, that's, this may sound crazy, but that's, that's what I want to do with my life. Mm. I would love to be one of these women who gets to run into an Olympic stadium and representing Australia. And it's really interesting how from that moment, my life changed forever in that my whole focus, um, the choices that I made, my behaviours changed. It was like I became not completely blinkered. It wasn't like I was obsessed. It was like I made positive changes to make that happen. Like I, I started to put down the stepping stones to allow that dream to be realised without having the attachment to the dream. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's sort of like, yeah. And now that I under, sort of understand sports psychology um, a lot better after you know having some wonderful years with great sports psychologists. I understand that that forward um, forward uh, reflection on where you want to go is so important, so that you experience and you feel what it may be like to be that person that you want to become. Um, and so when I was after I saw you know the girls run in and you know I was so excited and I went wow it was like this light bulb went off in my head. I put my running gear on <laughs> after the event was open, over and everyone was sort of heading off and I put my running gear on and I ran around the public areas outside the stadium and people were looking at me and going, oh, I wonder what, what event she's in. And, yeah, it was like I could hear them talking as though I was an Olympian. Yeah. 
And it was like my, I was, la- again, I was laying down some psychological um, beneficial pattern or, or framework in my mind that helped me get to where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And looking back, I'm not sure if you've heard of that um, that suggestion that it takes um, 10,000 hours to um, perfect a skill or, or, you know, reach your potential in a particular skill of any kind. But when you break that down into running hours and years for a marathoner, mm-hmm. it's exactly eight years. Wow. And that was my journey. That was eight years from Melbourne, uh, sorry, from Sydney Olympics exactly to when I ran into the stadium in Beijing in 2008. How freaky is so that? Incredible. So <laughs> incredible. Like, as, someone, really freaky. as someone that's run a couple of marathons, like it just, you know, for me hearing that, it just makes you like that, just that determination, even, even having like the seed of the thought to think that, Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this at the at the Olympics one day when you know you're not that sort of um you're not that child who's been raised sort of to be told that they're they're going to be an Olympic marathon runner from mm-hmm. a young age um you know to cr- create that seed of thought and then to actually make it happen like that is a that's a special sort of um like level of determination and courage and yeah and self-trust to have it's incredible it's so incredible and I thank you but I I I think that everyone has that potential if they want to open themselves up because it no one has no one at the Olympics or no one in any level of sport has a smooth run and I think the often those that make it are the ones that have had more challenges Mm. And they've been able to turn the challenges into lessons that have helped them improve. Yeah, into blessings. Yeah. And, and you did have your challenges, right? So from my understanding, yeah. you actually learned about some pretty significant um, elements of your health that you weren't aware of prior yeah. to embarking on sort of marathon training and, and the Beijing Olympics. Mm. Yeah, I did... Um, Nothing was smooth sailing, um, let's just say that, <laughs> over the eight years. <laughs> Running is lucky in that you put one foot in front of the other and if you do have a bit of dogged personality within you, you can progress. But there are setbacks because you're constantly pushing yourself and you're constantly on the edge and that's mm-hmm. part of being an athlete, I think, for anyone at any level. But, you know, a lot of runners have a lot of um, injuries. My body seemed to be fairly strong. I did have some wear out injuries I call them towards the end of my career but in by far most of my career I was challenged more by health and illness challenges until I worked out uh, what was really going on and for me I had recurrent um, anemia all like just all the time Um, I had uh, a lot of gut issues um, I a, yeah, a lot of illness that would set me back, just random things. I'd be training at Falls Creek and I'd pick up some infection from the pool mm. um, and then that would go rampant, you know, just unusual things. And I never really got a good grasp of why. I, most um, professional medical staff would just say it's because you're pushing the barrier, it's because you're female, it's because you're a distance marathon yeah, They just sort of put it down to overtraining very much That's so partially it probably was because I accelerated that training in such a rapid rate 
you know, those those eight years were very, very intense. Mm. And partially that was because I was then in my 30s and I didn't have the I didn't have the time that say if I'd entered in my early 20s that others may have. So I was pushing continuously. And it was when you look back, you think, well, that wasn't very balanced or healthy. Well, that's hindsight. And definitely I wouldn't recommend people train the way I trained. And I certainly don't train my athletes the way I trained. Yeah. yeah. But you know, um, there were other things at play that certainly became apparent and um, there was a defining moment I guess in my health when I was I was actually up in Canberra and I had been invited to do a study program um, at the AIS and they were trying to determine um, the influence of altitude on athletes and we were we were living in an altitude chamber that had just been completed so it was like a live-in apartment um, but the the altitude of the air um, and the oxygenation of the air was um, manipulated Mm -hmm. Um, and we'd have regular blood tests and we had to go in for two different blocks um, about six weeks apart I think it was and on that second block of time the first block went really well and we all responded really well to the to the exposure to altitude but the second time I went back in um they came to me, the scientists came to me one morning. We all had to get our bloods taken on a regular basis. And they came to me one morning and said, oh, have you, did you go out last night? Have you been drinking? And I said, oh, you know, I, I gave up drinking a long time ago. Yeah. No. And they said, well, your liver enzymes are through the roof. Um, there's something going on. It may or may not be just overtraining, but we have to, we can see that you're not well and it's probably not a good idea for you con- to continue on the program. So my arrangement there was terminated and I had to go home and work out what was wrong. And that was probably one of the major challenges was just finding mm. someone who could solve my puzzle or help me to understand what was going on. Mm. And I did try many GPs and got lots of different opinions and then I actually found an integrated GP who also practiced naturopathy and he took a step back and actually looked at things really holistically and ran a lot of additional functional tests as well as things like checking my insulin and a whole range of other things and we realized that I had liver damage which we already knew from those enzymes but I had insulin resistance I definitely had chronic fatigue and I had a couple of physical niggles that were flaring up as well with a disc bulge, but they weren't stopping me. It was more, I just felt flogged. Mm. And then uh, lo and behold, we, because my digestion was really poor. And so we said, well, let's just, has anyone checked for celiacs? And at the time, it wasn't so well understood or, you know, talked about as much. And so Routine testing didn't always include that. Mm. And um, back then, of course, well, let's, be, let's be clear, though, routine testing wouldn't have covered a lot of what you just said. Like, it's yeah. pretty hard to get a fasting insulin hmm. um, often True. these days. Yeah. So, like, like, credit to that doctor. Yeah, 100%. And the interesting thing was my blood glucose was actually okay. And, and I think that's But a my insulin was through the roof. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> which is why I don't know about you but I'm I, you know I always persist for my clients to get fasting insulin and mm. I, don't, I don't really want to just see fasting blood glucose because mm. it won't give us those early telltales that something like a fasting insulin um yes can show us and for you this you know this athlete rocking up to a doctor's 
a doctor's room, um, it could easily presumed that insulin would be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess that would be a likely, I can understand why that's the case because most athletes are fairly lean. They're not an atypical shape um, that may develop diabetes or insulin resistance um so I can totally understand why it wouldn't fit in with their normal picture because it is out of the square but what I do fully understand is that athletes are um, just as predisposed to issues with insulin than the normal population and it may not be as often that we come across that but it definitely exists and I think if we, as practitioners, we we definitely can, and holistic practitioners, mm-hmm. that's where our value is, is that we can take a different perspective of things and just check those extra things, um, yeah, so that we could un- uncover pieces of the puzzle that we may otherwise just never discover. And I think that, that moment where I realised I had celiacs made so much sense then, you know, why was my my iron always low despite you know, at that time I was eating, um, you know, eating red meat as well. Um, Mm. I since went through many different um, nutritional practices where I was strictly vegan. There are other times where I did eat red meat. Like I, 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 I tried lots of different nutritional principles to see what I felt best on, but it wasn't really adding up. And then all of a sudden it was like, aha, uh-huh. you know, there's that aha uh-huh moment. Yeah, yeah, here's what it is. And it was so interesting that taking that um, gluten out of my diet reduced, you know, those liver enzymes came down. I did have to do some work in terms of nutritional, a strict whole foods diet to help with the insulin. And ironically, I actually, because of the the level of fatigue, I actually had three months where I was told I wasn't allowed to run. Wow. Um, So I was actually allowed to walk, but the start of that process involved actually, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, it's it's fairly extreme and not definitely not widely used, but um, I was so overstimulated that it was recommended that I did sensory deprivation, which involves being in a darkened room without any interaction with anyone or anything no light, no no reading, no nothing, um, just lying and resting for 48 hours straight. Mm. Uh, so I was allowed to, I went to the bathroom but um, and I was allowed to eat if I wanted to but the, the food was left in the dark by the door if I was hungry. And, uh, you know, you might say, well, that's crazy, why would I do that? But I've got to say I'm really pleased that I took that step and just trusted in this wonderful practitioner um, and it, what it did was it just, it probably from a scientific perspective, it helped to reduce that fight or flight mechanism and that nervous system overstimulation to the point where my body could then start to heal again mm. and could actually move in a positive direction. Yeah. And then yeah. from there we rebuilt very, very, very slowly. Well, there's, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things when it comes to the diagnosis of celiacs, isn't it? There's, you know, step one, which is obviously removing gluten, which makes it, you know, if there's going to be an autoimmune condition to get, it'd be really nice to get celiac because you know what the immediate trigger is. So you remove mm-hmm. that gluten, but then you still have to do the cleanup, don't you, and the healing oh. and the rebuilding and um, yeah. 
it takes time. Sometimes people miss that step and they still wonder why they've got, you know, for example, lower iron levels years down the track. But that healing and rebuilding is really crucial and obviously you knew that that had to be part of your protocol if you wanted to be able to get to the Olympics. Yeah, well, very much so. And I think we can't ever underestimate the impact inflammation has, especially in anemia as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if that um, inflammation is the body in the body, then we're not going to utilise our iron stores and we're not going to actually, you know, if cortisol is high and we're in a stress response, you know, our hydrochloric acid, which helps us break down our iron and extract our iron from food, is also not going to be at sufficient levels. So we kind of... We're not only able to store it properly, but we're not able to extract it from our food. And then, you know, that then impacts other areas of our body that we kind of forget about, you know, like iron is important for immune system. And so we constantly get sick and iron's involved in, you know, some of the processes for our mental health. And so we get depressed and then we make even worse, you know, our food choices can be impacted you know we know what we should be eating but we don't always do that when we're feeling a bit low you know we go for comfort stuff that don't doesn't have the same nutrition as you know real whole foods and it's um yeah it can be a bit of a vicious cycle until we have until we have a bit of traction with our healing and until that snowball starts to move on its own we can be sort of held in a bit of a bit like we're held in a bit of a no man's land void we know we have to go from a to b but we're stuck in the middle and we don't always have all those necessary stepping stones to take us from where we are especially on our own it kind of that's where the value of being supported most definitely helps with the practitioner as you're talking I can't help but think and I'm I'm sure you would agree with this as, as a sports naturopath but you know, sometimes as athletes and, and you know, as an athlete working with, you know, the various practitioners that you had to prior to finding that, like, you know, that great holistic practitioner, you're often just looked at as the athlete, you know, low iron mm. levels, or mm. oh, she's overtraining, is she eating mm-hmm. enough iron, mm-hmm. what's her period like? And then, mm. but you're not looked at as the whole individual and, yeah, you know, inflammation is a great example. I was, you know, on a podcast a, a couple of months ago talking about, you know, how you know, we want to take an anti-inflammatory approach to our nutrition as athletes. And like you know, mm. the person interviewing me was just gobsmacked, like, oh, you know, nutrition impacts inflammation. Like, you know, it's oh, just, wow. it, it, yeah. and I think that's just a reflection of we can get narrow-minded with sports nutrition. Like it's just about, you know, get making you faster on the track, which obviously <laughs> is an element of sports nutrition, but how do we yeah. treat you as the individual so that you can totally. train better recover better and then perform better and I, I I'd say that's probably why you're now working you know one-on-one in sports naturopathy because maybe you felt that there was a gap in in, in the people Absolutely. that could help treat you as a whole 100 percent yep 100 percent and not only from the integrated GP that I worked with but also I I was very fortunate to travel to Boulder on a frequent basis for training camps um, before major races in Colorado in in the US and their practice and their use of naturopathy especially in in the sporting world was well ahead of us and especially in Boulder you know it's like this wonderland for elite athletes from all around the world and I found out of the need for support while I was there one time I found a sports 
focused naturopath who just worked with elite athletes. And that's where I got to experience the benefits of a holistic model firsthand. Um, and I noticed how much more quickly I could recover. And at the time, there wasn't major illness, but it was all about just maintaining my health. And that that's honestly where I got a lot of that inspiration. I thought, I don't, I don't feel like we have this in Australia, but there is definitely an opportunity. And now understanding that there has been a few practitioners around, but it just hasn't been as widely known, you know, but in the sporting world, we've been very much dependent on the traditional conventional model. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's good now that we do have options and we have collaborative care mm, so that yeah. we can use the best of both um, models and Precisely. blend that together in a way that gets the very best outcome for the individual athlete. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And so now, you know, do you find that um, iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia, is that something that comes up frequently for you with frequently. your athletes? Frequently. Okay. Yes, most definitely. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Yeah. Um, and often they are eating very well as well. So it's not it's not necessarily a depletion problem. It may well I shouldn't I should take a step back actually. Mm. When I have found certainly with plant based athletes, for example, mm. and and that obviously that side of things has increased astronomically in terms of its popularity and awareness that we actually you know sustainably and looking after our environment and everything else you know people's energy and consciousness around our consumption and our food choices has really shifted. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But what I do find is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes go people go into that model of nutrition, the more plant-based, and drop everything that they did do previously yeah. without the education. And they go into it very blindly. And instead of having, say, vegetables and meat for dinner, they're having a bowl of rice with a few vegetables and they're missing protein, they're missing quality fats and they're definitely missing iron. So they're the ones that I see uh, quite frequently um, and they're often the ones over time that will do quite well. I'm not sure if you find this too, but they'll do quite well initially um, sometimes up for the first 12 months, they can actually feel better, you know, being completely vegetarian, for example. And then little things start to creep in. The creep tiredness in. might creep in. They might get a bit of shortness of breath. They may not recover from a session or they may not perform as well as what they'd like in an event. And okay. then it's a little bit like a leaky balloon. It just gradually goes down as some of those nutrient levels that were once really well maintained have started to slip away and it's not until they're at quite low levels that they may be symptomatic I couldn't agree more like the yeah and that's why I'm really passionate about like you know plant-based kickstarter which is a a program that I've created and and working one-on-one with people that are are interested in plant-based nutrition is because I think there is a way to do it sustainably. Yeah. You have to be educated and understand, yep. like, yep. where are the gaps going to be? And then, obviously, mm-hmm. and then, what does it take? You know, iron. You know, you can obviously obtain iron on a plant-based diet, but 
for a menstruating female, it's pretty difficult to get exactly what you need. And then you add something like a high training load on top of that. Mm. And it's, you know, there's even greater requirement. Yeah. Um, You just have to be onto it, don't you? Like you have to really know and you have to be consciously eating, not mindless eating. Yeah. You can't just. Conscious process. Yeah. You can't just have your rolled oats you know, for breakfast and a muesli bar for lunch and expect you're going to get your iron levels in that day. It's not going to happen. So I think early, like early awareness is key, which, you know, can either come about through sort of early signs and symptoms or through testing. Mm. Um, How do you sort of get on top of things as early as possible? Mm. So generally someone will come in because they feel not quite right, but they're not sure what's happening. Um, you know, often there's few little niggles, but nothing that's really outstanding. And so I'll sit down and do quite a comprehensive health assessment so that I can flesh out exactly what is going on in the body in what systems. And then usually I'll be able to, you know, draw quite a line between all of these little niggles. And it might be that their feet are sore, um, their, you know, their eyebrows are twitching quite a lot. <laughs> They've got a painful tongue. They've got shortness of breath, but they can't understand why when they're super fit. Yeah. Um, just some really common di- bit of dizziness that they've never had before. Um, and then often they'll say, oh, and by the way, I'm, I stopped, you know, I changed my nutritional pattern about six months ago or even more recently. And they may or may not have um a cycle if they do have a cycle it's not always heavy where the problems arise and in endurance athletes they've also got the issue of losing blood both through urine um we lose some through sweat and we can also lose some through our bowel especially if we're doing really intense races you know 10ks half marathon distance Mm -hmm. marathon levels and Often I ask athletes, do you ever notice that you have rusty urine? And they go, yeah, why is that? Is that because I'm dehydrated? So they're not linking that to losing iron even through the bladder where it gets irritated from all that bouncing around (laughs) that, you know, that running um, can facilitate. And then, of course, it's a great idea to get some pathology so that we can firm up our suspicions. So some practitioners prefer to just do their diagnosis based on symptoms. I'm trained that I like to do a combination of both. So I will definitely always get a a really broad understanding of symptoms and how far and how long they've experienced them for. And then I love to do pathology. I'm really passionate about pathology and using that in clinical practice because that can help us pick up pieces of the puzzle that we may miss otherwise or irregularities that may not be atypical for that individual like the insulin side of things for me for example they wouldn't have been picked up otherwise um so i do like to do bloods and even things like um, doing c-reactive protein which is an inflammatory marker so if we do that at the same time as checking iron studies which includes ferritin which is the iron let's just call that the iron storage tank we can look at serum iron we can look at a few different markers in the blood that give us a broader perspective Mm. And then if we're looking at just iron studies and someone has been more plant-based for quite some time, well, it's likely B12 may also be depleted, possibly, likely. Mm. So both of those nutrients can impact a red blood cell. You know, the 
if we're low in B12, we'll often get similar symptoms. It might be more nervous system based, but often we can present the same way. Um, but our blood cells will look quite different. They'll look quite plump and big in terms of what we see um, in pathology, pathology results. Yeah. yeah, whereas the iron deficiency, if that's getting low, we see little immature small red blood cells. So it's a different kind of scenario, but both are impacting our ability to carry oxygen through our haemoglobin, through our body. Mm. So, and they're both going to impact us in terms of how we feel and how we function and our brain function. You know, foggy brain is a really common issue that people get when they, you know, when their their stores start to head south. Mm. Um, so it's pulling all of these pieces together because even if we went the other direction, for example, if we went just to look at pathology and didn't find out exactly all about the symptoms, well, every, this is the fascinating thing about this area in that iron deficiency is different to anemia. So anemia is when our haemoglobin also goes down. But by far the most common thing I see is iron deficiency, not the the anemia itself mm. so that's a bit more progressed when the hemoglobin will actually show up on a pathology test as being reduced the iron deficiency can often start first and what we start to also notice is that there's some uh, just some some little subtle changes in the pathology but it's not black and white it's not like you have iron deficiency and symptoms if you're under, say, 50, um, a, a, you know, if we just look at general pathology mm -hmm. and we look at ferritin, well, the scale is so broad. Yeah, it is. You know, it's from 10 to 200 or something crazy and every pathology has a slightly different version of that. So if we just looked at our pathology results, one individual could function, and I've had this in clinical practice, and often one elite athlete, and she'll be competing at, you know, Olympic level or world championship level, she will compete really well at a level of, say, 20. Another woman will come in and she is maybe 35 and she can hardly do the most basic stuff. Like mm. she is really, really exhausted. So we kind of can't just look at pathology either because if we did we're not taking into account some of the adaptations that athletes have and they get a lot more efficient with the usage of their iron um, we kind of forget about factors like have they been at altitude you know that 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 um you know hematocrit also affects our red blood cells and our ability to circulate oxygen uh, have they just raced you know is their crp way high because two days ago they raced in a major championship. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, you've got to kind of, it's good to take a step back and to just go, okay, here's, here's as much of the information as we can gather. This is where you're at now. Now let's go upstream and find out why. You know, is it nutrition? Is it your gut health? Is it related to your gut health? You know, is it something that is also hormonal? Is it endo that then is impacting your gut function and vice versa? Mm. You know, it's it's not as linear as what we can often see in the literature and, and in in the media. Yeah. Um, it's, I, of, yeah, I, of, I often <laughs> it's it's so complex and I often see, you know, 
in a in a more Western model where they just don't have that benefit of time. You know, like, mm. that, like you said, you have 60 yeah. minutes to talk to someone. They don't have the benefit of time. And the other thing that I see being done, which is a real bugbear of mine, is purely testing ferritin and not looking at transferrin mm. and transferrin saturation and using yeah. that as a, you know, to help get a guide as to, you know, whether that individual is going to succeed at the, the ferritin of 20 or the ferritin of 45. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just, I guess it comes back down to being holistic. So then you can see, all right, how far progressed is this person and, and what interventions do we need to put into place um, yeah. to help them? And how quickly can we do that as well? Like what's a realistic likelihood here of them being, you know, replete again in three months' time ready for that event or uh, is it going to take six months and do we need to set their expectations mm. appropriately? Because mm. in that linear model where it is just, you know, ferritin's low, we need to build it up, we'll put a supplement in place. Um, I don't know about you, but I often see that not working because we're not looking at the type of supplement or how long mm-hmm. or how to dispense it and and or what dietary changes need to be made to make the most of that supplement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and often it's um, you can make great progress with the basics as long as um, it's laid out, you know what I mean? Like if, if someone's on a um, commercial product and it's giving them constipation, for example, which some of our, our iron supplements do, they're, they're a formula that in some individuals, not all of them, it can cause constipation. So then what happens? Well, then they stop taking it for a yeah. start. <laughs> and then often the constipation's there, then they change their eating habits or they'll change something else to fix the constipation that can then deplete them further so it's sort of wow okay you know like Mm. again it's like this circle of okay rather than just using a supplement as a patch is that really the best solution for you at this point in time considering you've got a race next week you know and even just also keeping in mind I know we've talked about supplements but there are also Mm. other alternatives you know, that are available. And obviously as a holistic practitioner, I don't do IV iron, but it is very popular in, um, you know, in the sporting world. And in some circumstances, I can absolutely see the benefit of it. And when would they be? When would be the most likely circumstances where you... For example, when someone has been on iron supplementation for quite a long time and there isn't a pathology that is um, identified and they have a very finite time pressure mm-hmm. you know they have a major championship in a month yeah. um it's unlikely we'll get their stores back up to a, a, a really good performance level over that time it'll probably take a little bit longer than that as best as you know even putting our best foot forward it can mm-hmm. take a bit longer and if there is some gut work required well we know that's going to take you know the body just it does heal at its own time and it'll take a couple of months generally generally we can make good progress fairly quickly within weeks but you know, if there's something else going on, it's going to take a little bit longer. In those circumstances, I would, you you know, whilst I don't recommend them, I, I always say, look, this is an option and you need to talk this through with your sports medicine doctor because you may, you know, they may or may not believe that you're a candidate. And, and these are typically women who are on what I would call um, the the really lowest rung in terms of their ferritin, you know, they're 12, they're 14, you know, they're really low and they and they have significant symptoms, 
that is inhibiting their training and their recovery and their performance. Um, they, I, I do believe that there is a time and a place for that. But what can occur is that that athlete then believes, well, I don't have to look after my nutrition or worry about anything because I'll just have more of those infusions. Mm. That's not root cause, is it? (laughs) Yeah. But what we're also forgetting is that when we have an iron infusion, it's a significant amount of circulating iron going into the body at once that is not natural. You know, in, in, you know, our daily intake, we're lucky to get 18 to 20 grams typically if we're lucky, um, through a supplement, we might get 25 milligrams. Mm. Um, but an iron infusion straight into the vein is giving you 500. Some some are given higher amounts. And you think, well, what happens to that iron when it goes into the blood? Mm. Um, and a lot of it gets, yep, it gets sequestered by the liver. That's its job to store some as ferritin. But what happens to the rest? And our liver is good at also excreting some excess. So we do, you know, we do process it and and excrete it as well. But it also gets pushed into tissue. And that's the part that people don't recognise because they don't get the side effects or the symptoms of that until later on. So the tissue signs are things like really sore and restricted joints. You know, um, it, it goes into even the iris, you know, um, it goes into just yeah tissue general tissue throughout the body and that's that's a process that the body's going through to protect it because high iron levels are also toxic and you know it's a bit like you're rusty on the inside if you have too high iron so it's a protective measure our bodies have but too many of those infusions can increase the risk of longer term issues if that's your only uh, way of resolving the issue and you're you're very serious about your sport and, um, you know, you're competing over a long career, you may need, you know, five or more of them and that's where, you know, that's where my concern, um, you know, lies is that, yeah, we're just patching, we're not resolving the problem, but on top of that we may be causing possible damage potentially, mm. potentially, yeah. I, I would agree, I think, Um you know, it's not it's not helping to change the behaviours of that individual necessarily. Mm. So helping them to understand, you know, where they can find iron in their diet, whether it's through plant-based sources or not, or helping them to understand, you know, how they could use a supplement strategically if they are purely plant-based and yeah. and when to use it as well, you know, making sure that they're not having it alongside their cup of coffee or um yeah. or or their their multivitamin that has zinc in it, for example, yeah. which happens all the time. Which um, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, and then if you're not changing those behaviors, you you are. It's almost like a pill for an ill type mentality of, well, mm. in six months' time I can get another infusion, and six months mm-hmm. after that I can get another infusion. And uh, as as you know, holistic practitioner to holistic practitioner, that's not the goal, is it? We want to create yeah. fundamental shifts in behavior to prevent having to look outside to um, to keep nutrient yeah. status replete or performance, you know, where yeah. it needs to be. In the case of a of an athlete, a hundred percent. And I think the the risks of infusions aren't talked about enough. Like, yes, yeah. there is a place yeah. for them, but. You know, I'll have clients who say, oh, my doctor just told me to have one. And I'll say, but your saturation, like your, your saturation's already high. <laughs> You're not yeah. a candidate for an infusion. They haven't been made aware of the potential risk of that infusion. And sometimes mm-hmm. I see the conversation goes differently. You know, some 
some, some clients will say, oh, yes, my doctor said I have high saturation, so, you know, they're not going to suggest an infusion. And that's great when I see that. But, mm. yeah, I think there's a time and in place for that, for that infusion. And mm-hmm. if it's going to happen, having a discussion around, okay, well, this is the this is the solution that we're going to use now because, you know, you've got event A coming up because we can't supplement you uh, for the time being, but, you know, that deeper discussion around here is what you need to do with, you know, with your diet moving forward. Mm. Mm. Diet diet or other medication, I mean, it it still astounds me um, with all the knowledge that we now have around menstrual cycles and around the use of the oral contraceptive pill, how common it is still for athletes to suppress having a natural cycle through medication and then we forget that that can often lead to higher copper levels as well and then copper yeah. interferes with iron yeah. um we can't we kind of forget the broad as you as you're saying you know that broader perspective that may not actually be just about nutrition you know it can be a whole range of things that then impact the body's utilization of our nutrients and our ability to absorb them you know because it's often common you know if someone's got a absorption issue and um and they're eating really they have a brilliant diet and yet their vitamin d is still low um and their say their their b12 and iron is still low and maybe maybe they have you know what we call chicken skin that rash you know fine rash on the back of the arms which can sometimes signify you know not enough vitamin a and you kind of have to go well they're all adding up as nutrition you know nutrient deficiency why is that when you have a a1 diet why is that and often if you sort of delve a little bit deeper into the gut health they have malabsorption issues you know and unless that is resolved no matter how many supplements they take, no matter <laughs> no matter what they put into their mouth, it's just chasing the monkey. You know, we're not we're not actually improving the gut health. And in some cases, if we force feed too much of anything, we're going to you know potentially disrupt the microbiome even further. Whereas if we kind of take it take a step back and go, actually, how do we improve the environment of our gastrointestinal tract so that we're more efficient with the food that we do have time and energy and preparation time and energy mm. to put into our bodies that that fuels us for performance yeah. um, and and life and balanced hormones and you know everything else that we kind of sometimes we can forget just yeah. absolutely needs to happen it's not just about performance it's also about us as complete human beings and how how we're functioning our overall you know health is what's going to make us a really good athlete and be able to adapt and progress and perform at your best yeah and perform at your best yeah and everything you've just said you know those nutrients in particular you just sort of roll called like vitamin a vitamin d iron and we could add to that zinc yeah oh yeah i mean you know gut health is so important to those and of course those nutrients are harder to access on a plant-based diet so I'm always talking about you know it's not just about making sure you eat enough of those foods when we're plant-based and we're already really like trying to make the most of uh you know the beta carotene in our diet or the non-heme iron in our diet like having good gut health is absolutely crucial to 
the long-term success of, of dietary choices. 100%. Um, and, the, and the key one with that, you know, if you think about, um, I'm sure you go through this and describe this with your with your um, athletes, you know, is, you know, we've got a bit of a cascade throughout our digestive tract as well. If that if that cephalic phase, which is the first phase of digestion where saliva starts going, you know, starts being produced, if we're not even doing the most basic thing, like sitting down to eat slowly, (laughs) that first phase of digestion gets skipped and we throw literally, it's like our poor stomachs get a brick thrown down. Cop this, digest this. Yeah, Yeah. you haven't chewed it. You haven't uh, sent or given your body enough time to send the signals to the stomach to say prepare foods on its way and we've just thrown it down. And then, you know, if we've been a bit stressed, if we're training and if we've been plant-based for a longer period of time as well, we've got to remember that our body adapts to that and it's very clever the way it does adapt to whatever nutrition we choose um, in that then we potentially may downregulate the hydrochloric acid, which is the next important player, you know, in that cascade. Mm. But as I mentioned before, it'll break down a lot of our minerals that we need. Then if that's not at sufficient levels, what happens to the signaling to the pancreas? You know, we've got enzymes and all those useful things that then take on another stage of breaking down uh, our food into smaller you know, smaller uh, compounds that our body can absorb more readily and more easily. So, you know, if we start even the process with not chewing properly and then, you know, add all these extra things where we're not focusing on our gut health and we're not doing the simple things like stimulating our hydrochloric acid or we're, we're skipping the key nutrients or the foods that, for example, you just mentioned zinc, you know, if we're not having a diet where we're really focused on plant-based zinc-rich sources, well, it's pretty easy to miss, isn't it? Like it's really easy to miss and you kind of go, but I eat really well. Yeah, but do you have any zinc? Oh, maybe not, you know. I don't have many nuts and seeds and I definitely don't soak them and have them activated. I, yeah. You know, I eat them like, quickly. I don't I eat them and so I don't eat them anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in terms of supporting iron levels and sort of treating, we've talked about infusions, which I think, you know, we both agree are um, time and a place, but ideally not the first port of call. Mm. Um, nutrition is a big one, whether it's plant-based yes. or not, and making 100%. sure you're having enough and understanding how much you do need to have. Mm. Gut health, so you're making the most of what is coming in. Yeah. And that applies to supplements as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Sure access what's in the supplement yes yeah absolutely um and also you know there's quite as I touched on you know at the beginning of our there's quite a quite a number of different uh forms and some people respond to um you know a sulfate whereas other an iron sulfate sorry whereas Mm. others will find that they just get gastrointestinal problems with that um, whereas others find a bisglycinate form, for example, is far more palatable, especially with its combination. If it's a quality product, it'll have, you know, perhaps some of those other cofactors that help with absorption, perhaps some vitamin C. It might have some B vitamins in there. So we're actually enhancing or giving giving um, the body uh, an improved opportunity 
to absorb that iron. But it, it is really individual. One person may respond to one supplement and yet the person next to them may not have the same response. Um, yeah. But I think it's always got to be not just supplements. And in some cases, people will be able to do it nutritionally, you know, if they're in really good health anyway. Um, and if they do all the right things and they're quite diligent about that, but not always. If their training demands are um, and their nutrient demands are exceeding what you can physically eat in a day, and it isn't easy with iron to get all, you know, your requirement in if you're an athlete. Mm. so. Often we do need that combination. So not just a supplement, you know, good nutrition and a supplement. And then you've got a better chance of, you know, really boosting those levels within a, a, a decent time frame um, rather than taking, you know, forever, months and months and months and months and months. And the the research around when to take supplements is also evolving. I'm sure you've, you know, you see one study saying, well, an athlete is best to do it before hepcidin rises and that rises typically typically again it's evolving but typically about three hours after exercise so the theory is if you're exercising in the morning regularly have it first thing in the morning and then there'll be another body of research that says well you should have it with an iron rich meal you know so <laughs> but there isn't the compa- the direct comparison necessarily in the one study yeah. and then there's the 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 studies that say well we need to wait for hepcidin to drop which can occur roughly 36 48 hours so that's where we see the the dosing of every second day it's in the day mm. yeah and look there is no black and white one way or the other i think you start on one method and if uh, um if you really notice that look we're not getting as far as what I would expect at this stage, but we're, we're kind of flexible and we kind of go, well, maybe there's other things that we're missing here and we need to think more holistically here, what else is happening, yeah, and to mm. take a little step back rather yeah. than just saying you need more, you need more iron. That's not always the, it's, the solution. It's, yeah, it's often not the case. Um, yeah, we can actually impact iron. This is the the brain twister in that if we have too much iron, our our ability to absorb it can actually be Definitely. can decline. Yeah. So that yeah, that feedback mechanism where the body go recognizes, oh, there's plenty of iron in the bloodstream. We don't need to store it. We don't we don't need to absorb it, sorry. Um yeah. So we kind of have to not fool the body, but we have to kind of jump that circuit so we can you know, we can get um, iron into body, iron into the body in the in the kind of way that the body is most receptive to it. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. So I think you know, listening to what you're saying is that there's it's so important that you know individuals, athletes actually have someone that is supporting them in the process. Like something that may seemingly seem so simple, like re, you know, replenishing iron levels isn't always that simple, and so it is really helpful mm. with working with a holistic practitioner that can take a view of the individual, their training, their pathology, and really create, you know, a tailored plan. Mm. Um, you have a clinic. It's called the Athlete Sanctuary. Is that right? Yes, yes that's correct. So I do and, um, I do work online and in clinic. My patients prefer to come in face-to-face, and um, I'm based both in Torquay and Ballarat in Victoria, and then I've got... Um, lovely athletes all around you know all around Australia and and New Zealand actually that um you know I can check to online and yeah 
the one the joys of um the world wide web bringing us all that's and are you on social media, Kate? Can listeners yes. follow you on social media? Yes, I, yes, I am. Um, you can find Athlete Sanctuary on Instagram. You can Kate, you can find Kate Smythe Sports Naturopath on Instagram. You can find um, Athlete Sanctuary on Facebook as well. So I'm in a few a few different spots there, so people can um, usually just pop in Athlete Sanctuary or my name, Kate Smythe, without an e and um, can usually find me <laughs> awesome well it's been so great chatting to you I think like just in listening to I've already earmarked like two additional topics for future <laughs> episodes <laughs> um, but maybe we can put our heads together on that or put it to the audience but it's I'd love to do that awesome it's been really cool to hear about your journey and so inspiring and obviously you're you know you've just got incredible amount of knowledge that you've taken on since since being a professional athlete so thank you for sharing that and oh you're very welcome thanks so much for having me on board it's been a real pleasure thank you thanks Kate have you been thinking about taking a more plant-based approach to your nutrition for the sake of your health or are you already plant-based and in need of further education guidance and mealtime inspiration Well, if the answers are yes or yes, I think you would love Plant-Based Kickstarter. It's a five-week online program that I developed with the health-conscious plant-based eater in mind. It includes one week of education, four weeks of meal planning, and weekly live seminars with me. I'm Ellie. I have a bachelor's degree in health science, majoring in exercise science and nutrition. I'm now a holistic nutritionist with a love of yoga. I'm a dog mum and I'm a runner. And I have a particular interest in supporting digestive health, hormone balance, and metabolic health for the active and or plant-based female. In completing plant-based Kickstarter, you can expect improved digestion, greater confidence around your food choices, an understanding of how to prepare for and maintain the optimal plant-based diet, improved appetite control, and in many cases, fat loss. I would love for you to check it out at nutritionally.com forward slash plant-based Kickstarter. The next course begins February 28th and registrations open very soon.